Today's episode of Ask the Masters takes me way back in time, a time where we were all learning together. We were all much, much younger. When people showed up like the late Tom Driscoll with his happy sidekick, Lynn Forrest. We had Mark Holden, Roger and Sherry Soares, Kerry McCoy, and the happy Mikey Nance with Bill Drakeley. And there was one more person that was always there. From New Jersey, Kevin Fleming. Today, we bring Kevin Fleming back for this podcast as Kevin shows you a project that was midstream while Hurricane Sandy devastated the New Jersey coastline. He gets into the piles they use, uh, the different types of piles, colloidal silicates, uh, and, and then organic landscape design. Kevin is a one-of-a-kind designer. Stay tuned for today's episode. Please, if you get the chance, view this on YouTube. It's very, very visual with some astonishing pictures. And while you're there, if you do all of us a favor, hit that subscribe button, hit like, share it with someone, and then also please leave comments. Welcome to the special edition of Ask the Masters. to ask the masters we I, I can't tell you how excited i am today to touch base with a guy that i learned an enormous amount from uh teaching classes in the early genesis days um and it's been a little while since i've seen him and man i, I can't believe it uh kevin fleming of liquid designs uh started back in 2003 and he kind of systematically redefined the way the backyard experience was raised and expectations and kevin brought us all up together we were all rising um, Kevin has a, a bachelor's of science degree in landscape architecture from uh, West Virginia University and with over 30 years experience in the design. You can check out check out his home office right there with, with all the drawing tools, the whole stuff. Kevin, what's going on, man? You can talk to me. What are you doing? Uh, you know, just living the dream out here on the East Coast uh, in New Jersey. You know, it's hot and humid, uh, how it is normally at the end of August, beginning of September, but you know, wonderful to see you. Uh, it's awesome to reconnect with uh, all the old Genesis kind of crew where we all, you know, learned a lot together early on. Oh, fabulous. And you got, um, you know, you taught a lot of classes early on and you, you, you got a little project we're going to look at today. Um, what, do, what do you got? What do you want to show us? What do you got? Well, you know, Randy, you kind of inspired me about this. And, you know, you were giving me a little bit of factual information about how many uh, hurricane type storms are going to be approaching the East Coast over the next, you know, year or so. And you said, do I have anything where I've experienced this and or built projects that are, you know, quote unquote, hurricane proof? Um, there is no such thing if we get that 100 year storm. But I did have a project that we were under construction on that was a coastal project um that we were in the middle of construction when sandy hit which was one of the largest hurricanes obviously that hit the east coast in the history of the east coast um so i was going to share uh, a little powerpoint on that and then uh just some slides or you know i'm old school saying slides but some photograph images uh that show how i build pools to help protect them from these storm surges, if you may. 
Oh, well, fabulous. Let's get into that. And uh, why don't you go ahead and share your PowerPoint there while we go. Uh, Kevin was mentioning that uh, there's over 26 storms lined up that are going to hit the northeastern. Uh, they're actually going to move up through the coast. This will be a record year uh, for the, the number of hurricanes that we're actually having. So, um, wow. So, so tell us about this project. What, what, what you got here? So this was a really interesting, I was in the middle of a project in Manilokan, New Jersey. Um, it's a little north of Seaside Heights, which some people may know about the steel piers and uh, the museum rides that was in Seaside Heights. And Manilokan is a small little, almost like an island because it's the bay and then a couple houses, a highway and another house and then the ocean. So in this case, during Sandy, the bay met the ocean. Um, luckily, my client's house was located in the middle of that and raised up enough where he didn't lose his house because many, many did. Um, but I'm kind of skipping around on the procedure of how we did this job. But the homeowner called me right after we had shot the gunite and Sandy hit and said, look, can you put a team together to go to my house and see if there's anything left? Literally at that point. The homeowner didn't even know if he had a house because everything was shut down by the National Guard because there was no power, gas, water, um, and they were concerned about looting and all those kind of things. So these first few images I'm gonna run through are of the team I put together with the homeowner to be the first kind of responders post Sandy to be allowed on this island after it hit. Um, so that's kind of the intro to what I got going here. This is our check-in point that you're seeing here where we had to go through some pretty, um, you know, harsh checks to make sure we were legitimate. The homeowner had a special card. That's him in the red hat there. Uh, this is the next checkpoint where the National Guard is there checking every car, making sure you have the right documentation to get on the island. Now, this is an amazing slide because I was under construction on this project for months prior to this happening. What you see back here in the background where this truck and these sheet piles are, that was two rows of houses that were on the ocean with a road in front of it. Wow. Both the houses and the land are gone. The storm not only took the houses, but it took the land. They were putting sheet piles in just so the road didn't collapse into the ocean at this point. So that was my first thing I saw. You can see they did keep up the little Manilokan sign there, which was, was kind of cool. Yeah, that is definitely, wow, look at that. What as a picture. We, as we drove to the client's house, which was about uh, a half a mile to a mile from the bridge, we saw some pretty uh, scary images, this being one of them. It's another one. I mean, the houses were just, I didn't even recognize the town. This one I thought was very interesting because it shows a car that, you know, was tumbled over how, who knows how many times in, in the storm surge. Um, Unbelievable. Wow. So, uh, that, like I said, every single corner you went to, there was National Guard that were protecting the, you know, the, the valuables of everybody. Um, this is me. I was a lot younger back then. And the homeowner's in the red hat, and the other two guys are my plumbers, so he was allowed to bring four people. You know, he didn't know what we were going to be up against when we got into his house. So he wanted enough guys to help him maybe 
remove some drywall, some insulation or whatever if, if so we didn't get mold. So this is the site, which we'll go back to the construction of this job. This is when we first got there. The water was all the way up to this, um, to, to, to the first floor level here. So this entire pool got swamped by the ocean and the bay meeting. This was all underwater. But we were very happy to see that the pool was basically intact. Um, that's all salt water that was left over from being inside the pool. We had built a very custom fence, put some bamboo up along the front. Um, it took us about two hours to walk within about a half mile to a mile radius to find all these sections of fence, fences which broke away in the storm sewer and in the storm surge. Um, he had a lot of washout on his existing driveway and this was all a paver driveway that's all pretty much covered with sand and dirt and eroded. And there was quite a bit of erosion. There was a crack in the foundation that we later found all the way down through the garage, which I, I did end up fixing that for him and getting all the proper engineering to um, temporary support. We actually temporarily shored that garage up on the pool, fixed the foundation, and then uh, dropped everything back into place for him. Boy, somebody must have brought in that Linux barbecue. They didn't make it through the storm, did it? <laughs> no. <laughs> so... You know, this is some of the debris where we had our um, all of our lines pressurized here for the plumbing. That got pretty beat up and snapped off, so we cleaned that all up. Um, obviously, there was no power, so we brought in generators. And you know, the biggest thing I was concerned about was the amount of salt water that was in that pool. You know, salt water on a salt chlorine generator is a much lower parts per million than the ocean, so I was very concerned about contamination in the gunite and um, you know, breaking down any of the metals that were in the pool. So to me, it was crucial to get that, that salt water out of there as soon as possible. So we did that. We pumped the pool down, cleaned it out real well for him. We repaired all the plumbing that was broken, and then we repressurized everything. Um, it was very interesting driving around the neighborhood. They had state troopers from all over the United States that came in as paid volunteers to help out because they just didn't have the manpower to police the amount of square miles that were damaged by Sandy. And just about the entire Jersey coast shoreline was without power, gas, and electric for multiple months. This was the extent of his damage. He was very lucky. This is a low-lying area of his house, um, which you can see we basically came in and cut up to where the, you could see the line right here. That's where the water line reached on the wall. So we just helped them out and came in. You can see there it is there again. That's how high the water came up. In was, that, this. was that coastal flooding or was that a surge? I mean, how, how did the water get that high? It was both. It was, it was a surge. It was, it was increased, you know, uh, water surge in general, but then a surge from the ocean came and the bay on the other side already being at a high level, they met, the ocean and the bay met, which has never happened before. Yeah. So like I said, he's very lucky he has a house, very fortunate. So we really just came in, we cut out all that drywall and basically removed all the, you can see the insulation here. This is the problem after something like this happens, you know, all that mold can start growing in the walls. So we removed, you know, anything that was wet, 
basically threw it out back, got the pool repaired, and kind of left. And it was a very successful trip. The homeowner was very thankful that he still had a house. So I kind of wanted to start with this to, to give you an idea. We did continue to build post Sandy, but it was a very tough build because we had no water and we had no electric and we had no gas. So uh, this then ran into the winter months where we built a tent and we heated the interior of the pool so we could work inside of it properly. Uh, we brought our own generators because we had no electric. And then we even brought our own water sources where we would bring in large containers of water on a pickup truck, pump that into a, um, a tank that we had on site. And that's how we got all of our water to do our masonry work. So were you staging in every day and staging out? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, once we got set up, we were allowed to leave everything. But um, yeah, it was it was really hard because it was hard to get the permission to even come on the island and work. And again, the homeowner, we were going to work through the winter. So we had his house for the summer, you know, being here on the East coast, you know, January, uh, June, July, and August are the key months. I mean, they're basically the three main months that they want these polls done. So the homeowner spared no expense to give us carte blanche to do whatever we had to do to build, to meet that, you know, June 1st kind of date. Wow. What logistics? Crazy. Yeah, it was, it was fun. So, you know, I started with that so you could see, you know, what could happen. And, you know, based on our conversation, Randy, you said, you know, well, what do you do to combat this? And, you know, some of this construction you see, you think would be standard construction on a coastal property, but it's not. So I put together um, a few images of this project and a few others of some things that we do and how things are built to help protect these pools and stop them if there is a big storm surge from floating away, if you may. Or, you know, if, uh, if you think about a smaller pool, I think could become a big ram hoe if it gets dislodged, it could take out a house or whatever. So we'll go through some, I'm gonna go through some quick slides on how we build on the coast here. You know, the first thing is in this particular project, you see we're right next to the water. So when we dig, we're gonna be hitting water a foot down. So we do a dewatering system with a tow behind pump first. And that's what you're seeing here. These are well points that go into the ground and remove the water from the area where the swimming pool is going for the excavation. So you're dewatering that area basically so that you can excavate it? Is that typically? That's 100% correct, yeah. Okay. The piles have already been put in. Okay, um, the piles go in first, then we dewater, and then we start digging around the piles. The issue is sometimes when you start digging, which this is the project um, that I had shown you, even though we had the well points in, we were still not able to control the water with the well points. So we had to put another pump in and a series of well points in the middle of the pool on this one. Okay, uh, back up because these piles are different. You know, in California, we dig and uh, and we put piles in. It. How do how do you install these piles, and and what do you use as a criteria? So these piles, if you go back here and look at at the top, these are wood piles that are either banged down by a large hammer on the top with a big rig, or sometimes water jetted in. This is the way that all coastal pools were built 
on the East Coast pre-Sandy. Now we are getting into more helical piles, micro piles, um, and also, you know, friction piles. It really depends on it. But, you know, once in New Jersey, once you get through this, you know, layer of water, and then there's usually a heavy organic mat of material underneath that, once you get below that, which generally runs 25 to 40 feet down, you're in good stuff. And the wood piles are good enough to hold the pool up. So, I'm, uh, we're seeing more and more helicals. And um, I think that's a term that a lot of people in the industry are unaware of. So hey, do you mind explaining a helical? Because I think that they're, you know, we're seeing more and more. Are you seeing, are you, and they're economical, somewhat economical to put in. Well, to be honest with you, they're not economical. They're way more expensive than the wood pile because they're metal. You know, they're, they're a, you know, a galvanized kind of steel. And it looks like a giant screw, basically, is, is what it is on the bottom. And then there are um, rods, square rods, that link to that as you go up in depth. And it's done with a machine very similar to what you see here, a small track hoe, with a device that spins that, that screw pile, they call it, down into the ground. And that machine that they use has a device on it that tells them, you know, the, the, the torque pressure that they're getting back in pounds so they know where to stop. We'll have, the engineer will specify, you know, what the load capacity of that pile is and the operator will drive them to that capacity with an engineer on site overseeing all that and logging all that so there is proof that it was all done correctly. Fabulous explanation of what a helical is. So if you haven't seen these helicals, um, you know, be aware that it is an option. And uh, interesting, uh, in California, we've seen when we're working in sand, sometimes a little more economical than trying to drill and, uh, and drop piles in. Yeah, economical is, is a, a lot of times, Randy, economical would mean access to. You know, to get the big rig in here to drive the wood piles is much more difficult than um, a, a smaller track hoe to drive the helical. So there could be a savings there for sure. Wonderful. So again, this is pretty standard practice where we put the piles in first, we cut them level, and then we dig around the piles until we get the floor depth right. And you can see the process here. We're just working our way down the pool uh, and out. Sometimes we have, you know, where water starts to break through. This was a project that I really built close to the bay that was a very difficult to control the water coming in. But when you're all done, you get your floor set, then you come in and the engineer will tell you, um, how far he wants the piles to penetrate into the floor of the pool you'll calculate that out and then you'll actually take a chainsaw and you'll cut those piles flush to that depth which wow. is what you're seeing there so then after that's done you know these coastal jobs are all basically what i call sugar sand so the sand uh will not stand up um you know the the less sophisticated pool guys will go in there and try to shoot gunite up against the sand and cut the wall to save money. It's an impossibility. It just, it does not work. You have to form these walls properly. You're shooting that gunite at such a force, those walls can't move, they can't vibrate. 
which our friend Bill Drakeley would tell us all about that. <laughs> he, he, he would definitely tell you that if you don't have a solid form, you're not going to have a solid wall. So, yeah, trying to shoot up against something. Wow, man. I mean, we frame yeah. everything two by four stud construction, top plate, bottom plate. Um, and then we sheath it all in plywood. And then we either, and then we'll put a visqueen uh, plastic barrier on everything. So when we strip the forms, they'll pop off. And then we will support everything. Uh, with a bracing system to hold them up. Wow, what a lot of work, a lot of work, weeks of work probably. It, it, it does add a big cost factor. You know, building a pool on the coast here is, you know, you have the cost of the piles, you have the cost of the dewatering, you have the cost of the forming. Um, you know, that adds hidden costs that the client can't see. So it, it, it's an education factor for the client that it's very hard to sell and explain why they have to spend an extra twenty-five to forty thousand dollars on something they'll never see. Mm -hmm. Again, this is a project that was very difficult for me because we were so close to the water. I really thought I was going to have to bail on this one, but you know, we were able to get it all in and control the water until you know the gunite was cured. So once you know, once the uh, forms are up, then we'll run all the plumbing in the pool. Um, there's different kinds of forming we do as well. Sometimes we'll need to form forms where we can't strip later. So we'll build them out of CMU and they will stay in the ground. No. Um, in this case, we, we didn't have enough room to over excavate because we had a driveway here. So we built the form here out of CMU and we'll shoot up against that. And that'll just be kind of like an outside wall that won't be used for anything other than a form uh and stay underground in the future ah, interesting and this is another example of that so this outside wall is formed this is a wall that we couldn't strip so we just ran it up to where we could strip it and then there's an internal wall here where the depth of the pool changes from deep to a thermal ledge that wraps around here so this steps up here so there'd be no way to strip that wall when this is all shot with gunite in the future oh got it So wow. that's what the forming looks like when you're all done. I mean, you can kind of get the idea of the shape of the pool. And again, a lot of these images, this one in particular, is the, are the images that was the project I showed you from Sandy. This is that project. Incredible. This is the plumbing for that project. This is the spa and through here. Um, uh, suctions returns in the main pool. This is going to be a, a kiddie pool up and through here. So something that's very important when we do these coastal jobs is the hydrostatic relief valves. Um, most of the industry don't even know what that really means. They just say it. Oh, we put we put those in in every pool. Um, you know, just putting a tube through the ground, you know, putting it into the dirt doesn't really accomplish anything. We actually make our own hydrostats. They're T's where we drill into the bottom of, of the pipe. And then uh, we have a, um, a check valve here that only allows the hydrostatic water pressure from underneath the shell to come out. It doesn't allow the water from the pool to leak down in. Um, so what this does is after the pool is shot, it will allow any, and you turn the, uh, you, you turn off the dewatering system, 
it will allow that groundwater to come up and equalize inside the pool. And then you leave that like that until you're ready to plaster the pool. Then you shut those down, you seal those off, you clean that water out, you plaster it all in one day and you fill it with water and all in one day. Again, being that they're tied to the piles, which I'll get to in some future slides, you would think that's enough and it should be, but the hydrostats just take that pressure off there. Whenever we build projects, we always try to layer protection. So it doesn't cost that much more to do it the right way. And we don't want any problems in the future. And for all our listeners, if they've never, they've never seen a pool float, you know, that's, uh, it's not a pretty sight. All right, so this is what we do with the piles now. We drill the piles and then we feed epoxy coated rebar through those piles. Very important because if you use standard rebar through there, the piles, if you think about it, at some point are, are underwater. And even though they're pressure treated piles, that water can wick up into the wood pile and that oxidation that could happen, which is rust, from the from that piece of steel could get into the tire cage of the shell and contaminate it so it's very important that these are epoxy coated rebar piles and again it's something that's missed in our industry all the time and all that work they did and money they spent now they're risking their rebar's life being reduced because of oxidation interesting so normally they want us to run it two different ways so we, we run all these um, epoxy coated rebars and then we bend them up before we install the rebar for the floor. So that's looking down into a, probably a thermal ledge. So there's an upper cage and a lower cage. And then you can see how that with hickey bars, we then bend that epoxy coated rebar. And generally they like it if it's a double mat, they like that rebar attached to the top mat as opposed to the lower mat. Oh, okay which is an important detail for the engineers. And again, these are just various projects where, and they also, there's always a particular lap that depending on what the soils testing says, um, that the engineer re, you know, requires as well. Incredible. You know, even if you're just doing a reflection pond, which is what this is, this is, you know, probably 10, 12 inches deep. Same procedure, we're still doing the piles, we're still tying the floor to it. We don't want that thing to float away. And the concrete pools will float. You know, there were, there were ships that were made out of concrete at one time, they uh, definitely floated. So again, this is that project uh, in Manilokan. You can see we have a double mat of rebar in here. And the other thing that's really interesting to talk about real quickly on the sidebar is one thing we've done with value engineering is, you know, conventional pile construction, Randy, that you're probably used to is you have piles and then you have a pile cap or a grade beam, if you may, like a bridge mm -hmm. that ties those piles together. Then you cast the pool on top of that. We've done a lot of value engineering where by the time we excavate those grade beams, form those grade beams, put the rebar in those grade beams, pour those grade beams, strip those grade beams, backfill those grade beams. It's actually the same or sometimes less costly to 
put an entire structural floor in the pool. So if you may, the gray beams are inside the floor or the floor is one big grade beam. So these floors that I do are generally 15 to 20 inches thick um, with no grade beams. So it's a structural slab that's held up by the piles. Wow, that's a, that's a great little inside tip for uh, our listeners to you know, uh, understand that it's one way to value engineer their products. Great tip there, Kevin. So again, you, the rebar is done. We get to the gunite stages. I'm sure everybody watching this probably knows everything there is to know about gunite. Um, but I just wanted to take you through kind of the whole process. So again, here's that pool that I came back to post-Sandy, pre-Sandy. Everything's shot, everything's pressurized. You know, we're getting ready to get to the next phases of construction and boom, Sandy hits. I like it. I could tell that wasn't Bill Drakely on the nozzle because he didn't have a Green Bay hat on. <laughs> well, he probably wasn't the right distance and uh, had the right angle that was required either. <laughs> Bill's a master of that. We know that. Um, so anyway, this is the shell of that project. Uh, wow. This is the interior of the spa. We radius all our benches, 16 jets. Um, Acuron is our... Uh, choice of our first level of um, waterproofing on a shell. I don't build any shells without using Acuron. I usually do two coats in two different directions, which will give me up to a six inch penetration. Um, Acuron is a colloidal silicone sealer um, that will also uh, wrap itself around the rebar and help reduce oxidation in the rebar as well. Um, and it works both ways and not only it, it, it'll stop um, from the pool side, water penetration, and it'll also stop from the, 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 uh, the underside of the pool where I have this, you know, wet feet, if you may, with all these projects. So, you know, to me, it's a wonderful product. There are other ways to handle this. You can use integral mixes. Um, but we have a lot of problems getting the consistency with our gunite guys when they start mixing other things in and, uh, this is, we've been very successful with the Acuron as our first line of defense. And, and, and Kevin, the colloidal silicates, you know, now are manufactured by uh, other, other manufacturers and Acuron, I think was the first one to the scene in the pool industry. And, and, and now we, uh, you know, we see Meadows, uh, we see uh, Laticrete, we, other, other, other people actually have colloidal silicates at this point, just to, you know, shout out to everybody, um, you know, and, and sometimes it seems like it's a little pricey, but the extra benefit you get in the strength of the shell is, is very important. So good tip on, on the uh, colloidal silicates and, uh, yeah. and the Acuron. Um, I think we are seeing that you want to get that on as quickly as possible before there's a pH change in the, in the actual shot crate. So more and more it's going on, you know, the, the next morning uh, sometimes to really seal that thing up and make sure you get on it as quick. So you still do want to water and so on, but you want to get that colloidal silicate, a nice even spray of that, uh, you know, on you know, the Randy, shelves. We, we've even stepped that up even more. We're, we're sometimes, especially if we have multiple day shoots, you know, I, I've had some complications with jobs where, you know, if I'm building on the coast, it's hot. We have a breeze there. So even if we build a tent, you know, our temperatures are not in the range they should be for shooting gunite. So, um, you know, I've really set my game up with that over the years where I actually have people that I 
you know, I have a separate crew that comes in with the gunite guys that keeps the shell wet as they're shooting. And then the second they're done, uh, we hit it with the Acuron that day now. Wow. Um, Great tip. Great. And definitely the way you want to do it. The quicker you can get it on is it's, it's migrating out of that gelatin state and you can get that Acuron penetrating in and pulling in and, you know, within that, the, the calcium silicate, it's, it's going to pull that stuff in and really, it's, it's going to increase your strength dramatically. Well, you know, in, in tar talking to the experts over at Acuron too, with this, I found out that, you know, they've done case studies where, you know, it, it, it's serving as a, you know, um, as a curing agent as well now. So it, it has so many, they have done case studies and paid engineers to, you know, certify that it, because I've done some very large projects that could be three, 400 cubic yards of gunite. And it, it, it's very important that, that you treat that. It takes three days to shoot a job like that. So we actually take the temperature of the gunite and all that kind of stuff. So and, and for our listeners, Kevin, you know, if you haven't applied uh, colloidal silicates to your shells, I talked to an expert because there are some uh, some kind of techniques that you you want to learn how to do and and the application and you know make sure that you're you're not over installing your colloidal silicate. So there there is a, a you know it is a little technical and we're probably not going to have time to go into it today. But uh, you know just don't run out and, and think you're going to no, install you, this you stuff. Need to be certified. You know you need to know how to apply it properly. You have to use an airless sprayer. I mean it's not it's. You know, it's, it's something that you have to learn and do properly. Absolutely, Randy, good point. Um, so, and again, as soon as we get that done, we obviously water cure all of our uh, shells with a soaker hose and pumping system um, for at least 14 days. Uh, and we get that on there, you know, if not that night, the very next morning we're, we're curing our shells. We're, we're seeing it and we worked, um, I've got a guy up in the um, Silicon Valley and what we're finding after doing years of startups that we're actually trying to recirculate that water down in the bottom of the pool with a pump and we balance it. We make sure that we've got adequate calcium in it at 200 parts per million because we know hungry water and, and we're getting some, you know, tap water in California now that's down to zero in calcium hardness. So you, I think you, you want to make sure that the water, if you can recirculate it into these soaker hoses, is balanced that you're putting onto these shells. And uh, that's balanced for a cement tank. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, I don't recirculate. I just pump it out and, and bring tap fresh water that's pre-treated in. I generally don't use that water. I know it's a, it's a waste of water, but, you know, that, that's, that's what we do. A lot of the projects I work on, uh, off the coast too have wells, so it's really not um, an abuse of water. So, sure, sure. So this is the completed project uh, in Manilokan that we did that started off with, uh, you know, uh, a great shell and then about a two or three month hiatus because of Sandy, maybe four, which led into, you know, a very difficult construction schedule because we lost four months of time, which hence was the tent you saw earlier. So um, what's, what's this tile here that you've got going on? <laughs> this is an all glass um, custom blended Cetus tile. Oh, okay. um, we really like this product because it's a mosaic and we are able to bend all of our benches in a two and a half inch radius. We will float that out and make a perfect radius on all of our benches and steps. 
which is very comfortable to sit on. Uh, but you still have the ability on, you know, dam walls and things like that to have the, you know, you know, the 90 degree kind of butt joint here. So like not a big space, but the theory was to surround this whole space with water. So we have a nice reflection pond here. There's a little kid pool that wraps around the backside of the grill that goes into the main area. Um, small space. So we came up with a design where underneath this table, when they're not eating or using the table, they'll spin this to the outside. And there's some removable stones here that is an underground fire pit that we created. Wow. Uh, this is on the other side of the pool. Again, that whole theory of, you know, for centuries, and if you look into history, the way things were built, you know, um, they always had a body of water in the middle of a large shopping area in history or whatever it was, because the idea is that breeze blows across the water and cools the area. So that was kind of like the underlying theory of the design here, where we surrounded this little, you know, living space with water on all four sides. That's it. That's, that's amazing. And, you know, that was the way they cooled a lot of, a lot of the, uh, the places over there in Spain and, and different places Turkey. where you had these long, you know, yep. in Turkey. Um, and again, you can see how we make all of our outside corners here with those radiuses. We actually hand cut them and lay all them. All of our spas always have an arm ledge. Uh, so you don't have a piece of coping hanging over the back and, you know, poking you in the back. It's, it's a very small design feature, but it's, um, kind of one of our, you know, standards that we do that is very well received. Your, your, your clients don't have that square notch in the back of their neck? That... They don't. They don't. Uh, okay. Okay. How many times have we sketched those up over the years to explain to a client that? <laughs> I got pretty good at drawing that stick person sitting on the bench. <laughs> but again, you can see the level of um, detail that we get into with this tile. It's just, it's, it's a very forgiving tile. Um, you know, all of our drain covers are, you know, inlays as well. Unfortunately, with the new standards over, you know, many years ago, you got to double stack them now. Uh, so they stand out a little bit, but. Beautiful corners, my man. Beautiful corners. Wow. Look at all that blue stone. Is that, that's Pennsylvania blue that you've designed uh, to put in blue. It is a Pennsylvania stone, but it's, it's, it's a, I think they called it a, a Pennsylvania quarry stone was the name of it. Okay. But again, they had little kids at the time. So, you know, they wanted them to be able to run around here. And we, we did a couple water features, which, you know, aren't always my favorite, but we try to understate them and, and keep them very simple. We built them ourselves, uh, fabricated them out of the stone itself, so they look very natural and not, you know, some kind of fake plastic and or, you know, metal unit in and there. You've set this cooking area right up on top, um, you know, so in, in the design that you did it, put it close because it looks like you've got a couple of countertops. And uh, what are those countertops done out of? Is that a... a... Uh, they were all, I think it was um, Uba Tuba. I think we used on this one. It was a granite uh, wow. because the stone, if you really looked at it closely, we, we pulled the green uh, out of the stone with the Ubatuba. So it, it, it worked well. And then there was, you know, a little bit of iron in the stone as well. So it, it, it was a nice uh, blend with the stone. I like the way you picked it up with the furniture too, my man. That's, that's beautiful. You had a little bit of that orange mid-century uh, chair going on there and some really nice yeah. furniture. 
you know, the client was, um, you know, was, was, uh, willing to spend what it took. That furniture was, was some of the highest quality furniture I had ever, um, installed or been part of choosing on a job. Uh, very, very nice stuff. Yeah. Uh, and this is the backside of that cooking area there as you come down the stairwell where the kids could literally, you know, jump right in there and walk around that little, walk around that little thermal ledge. What happened here? So, so wow, that look at the garden. So when you're doing your landscape design um, here, how do you, um, Kevin, Kevin's got his helper there. Yeah, that's Rudy. Hey, Rudy. I like it. So, so plants, because you guys go through three, you know, freeze saw, you've got some of the bamboo. I mean, do you guys plant this stuff out every year or what? You know, actually, you know, because of the, some of the uh, experiences I've had in LA, I mean, you guys definitely have different plants, but I've, we have found plants that give you some of that West coast feel that will survive here in the East coast. Um, this is horsetail, which is equisetum, which I'm sure you're familiar with. You guys probably think it's a weed there, but people here have never heard of it before. And it actually does very well here. We put it in containments and we irrigate it very heavily. And it, it really is a bog plant anyway. So as long as you keep it wet, it's a weed. It'll grow anywhere. And uh, uh, same with the bamboos. We, we, th there are certain bamboos that, that um, tolerate the freeze thaw. And they, just like any other plant, they go through growth cycles. They have a, a spring and a fall growth cycle. And you guys may control it a little bit. I think there's a little over a hundred varieties of bamboo. Some of them are pretty aggressive. And the horsetail is, is a, it's a very architectural, you know, the way that it grows. It's, and it's a beautiful color. You know, it's got that Absolutely. great color. Like I said, we, whenever we install those invasive plants, we always build containments uh walls on, on on all sides and uh you know make sure that that they can't get out of there so this is the little fire pit that we created here if you look to the left there's um removable stones with little finger holes and then we grinded numbers in the back so the client knew how to put them back together so at night you know they could slide that table off to the side there and you know have a nice little fire pit going as well that's great. And to all of our listeners, you want to be careful about the stone you put in there that you pre-test it because some of the stones can maintain water. And if you put fire to those things, if you've ever seen a stone explode and burn your furniture, it, it, it's not pretty. So uh, this isn't for the novice. You just don't go pick a stone somewhere at a stone yard and throw it into your fire pit. Randy, it's, it's amazing you brought that up because, you know, I approach everything, you know, for every failure you have, there's more success. So this was, I built this project probably close to seven years ago now. Um, you know, the stones and the fire pit and fire pits in general on the East Coast didn't exist here seven years ago. That, you know, you guys had them. We're, we're 10 years behind the West Coast. So, you know, fire pits are all the rage right now uh, here, here on the East Coast. But I purchased a... Um, it was a ceramic stone that went in here. Oh. And just as you said, I had problems because of the moisture that was being trapped in there. And all of that stone completely decomposed and I had to rip it out and replace it. That's so incredible. It, 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 it was something that was told to me that would work by the manufacturer that didn't. You know, you'll have that. 
thank God that was the worst thing that happened on the project. But, you know, you, you know, you live and you learn about that. Great design on that barbecue area, man. I Oh, look at this picture. This is, this, this is, uh, this is, this is Kevin Fleming. Look at that. The splash of the red and wow. Beautiful mix there. So, you know, the landscape end to me luckily comes very natural because that's what I studied and that's what I did for 10 years out of college. But I don't push it because, you know, I love the pool industry. That's my media. That's, that's what I use to create my art. But what ends up happening is we build a trust and a relationship with the client and the landscaping always falls into place. And on this particular project, you know, he wanted a very zen-like feeling and the biggest problem you have at the beach is when you have guests you never have enough parking um so we came up with this design that kind of mimicked the zen gardens where you would rake the small stones out but this is also a parking lot um if you look at how these amorphic bays are set up you could fit one two three four five six seven eight you could fit almost nine cars in this area. But the, or, um, the organic nature of it, the way you, you do this design work. And I was fortunate in the early days that I, 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 I took your classes on design and learned an enormous amount. But look at, look at the stone piles. You know, it, it's all, it's like full of art. And then there's always, what you would teach us was a splash of red. You always put the splash of red in the tree. So, so notice that tree in the middle that's got that just a touch, just the right amount of splash of red. Beautiful. We were fortunate where we had some great mature black pines that I trimmed up and actually guy wired and trained to look like, you know, kind of hundred year old topiary trees, which worked out very well. Gorgeous. Oh, look at that. Look at that. Beautiful. And that spun into redesigning the whole entry to the house, which is this, um, you know, we did a very organic, again, Zen like feel. Uh, with some steps that and a planner here uh, that rose up. Uh, we did a lot of bamboo accents. We even did the railings uh, out of ba uh, black bamboo here. Um, the, the fence was custom built and designed by us. So we actually built this whole fence. We found this chunky stone, which was actually pieces of stone that were <laughs> the trash that they had left over from the stone we used in the back. Um, so we bought several pallets of it and, you know, made this very organic kind of chunky column and low wall. And then we poured some very rough um, caps just out of standard concrete and roughed them up and made them look very old. And then uh, had their carpenter build these sections with the, it's all the connection back to the bamboo. We ended up, this is a, the major road right here. So this now has probably 20 foot, 25 foot high bamboo. That's a backdrop to this fence um, behind it. And then the fence, which is in the front. How, you, you know, I, I've got to add, oh, look at that rock. Absolutely beautiful. But you brought the architecture of the fence in with the columns, with the green, with the organic. Um, you know, how important is travel to you? I, have, have you seen, I know you can study it, but you've also traveled extensively. So, you know, I, I wish I traveled more now, you know, I've, I've been to, you know, several places, but I wish I was to several more. Um, you know, the way I looked at it is early on, 
when I was starting my family, I kind of went to the down and dirty places, China, Turkey, Egypt, um, you know, places that aren't real glamorous. And then, you know, when my kids were older and my wife was able to leave the house, then, you know, we started to go to Paris and um, Italy and places like that. So it was paramount, really paramount. Um, I could do a whole special just on that. I mean, some of these details that you'll see in our pools, uh, we've actually seen done hundreds of years ago on some of the first pools and spas that were ever built. And, you know, they resonated into design and construction ideas from us that I think help separate us from the rest. I, I, I like your definition. I, I, I got to laugh at that a little bit, Kevin, because you say China, Turkey, Egypt, those are all places where design started. And that was the low level list. Then you jump to Paris. It's like, wait a minute, man, come on over, over this, you know, how many wonders in Turkey? I mean, <laughs> well, no, the sad thing is too, uh, you know, you can't, it's hard to go to those places now. I'm really yeah, glad I, I when I went because the travel is so difficult and the world has changed so much. Yeah, it, it certainly has. So that's it. That's, that's my, uh, that's my storm project, uh, for, uh, 2020 here. Oh man, we got, I got to love it. Got to love it. Um, you know, uh, again, you know, it, it's been such a pleasure, um, you know, seeing you, uh, come back in and, um, you know, man, I, you know, I missed you. I missed you. There were so many different things that, uh, you know, we, we traveled and you taught me so much. So man, what an honor to uh, have the ability to come in and, and share this project with you today. I, I got to tell you, it's really, really been wonderful. So um, I, I appreciate you to give me the opportunity um, and, and, you know, look forward to doing some other cool subject matters in the, in the very near future, Randy, you know, this is, this is really cool. I, I give you huge kudos for just, you know, doing this and staying the course and, uh, you know, keeping it going, you know, you can't, it's, 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 it's easy not to do this. It's, it's hard to do it. So uh, everybody, I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Ask the Masters. He is Kevin Fleming. Uh, Kevin, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, uh, what's the, what's the best way? Tell, tell us how our listeners can, can touch uh, base with you. Email's the best. Uh, very simple. The name of my company's Liquid Design. My name's Kevin. So my email address is liquid a at comcast c o m c a s t dot net liquid k at comcast dot net. He is Kevin Fleming. This is Ask the Masters, and we appreciate you taking time out of your day to listen to this episode.